Welcome everybody to the Saints and Scholars podcast. We're delighted to be back and uh, we've got a spe- very special guest. So I'm delighted to have, uh, we're delighted to welcome E. Michael Jones onto the show. Um, maybe just a quick uh, background um, regarding um, Dr. Jones. He's a former professor of American literature and uh, he was fired, I believe, uh, because of his positions on abortion. Uh, currently the editor of Culture Wars magazine. And that magazine, I believe, it's um, focuses on the disarray in the Catholic Church, what's what's happening. And uh, he's author of several books: mm-hmm. *Libido Dominandi*, *Slaughter of Cities*, *Barren Metal*, and his recent book, most recent book, was *Logos Rising*. So we've a lot to talk about, Doctor Jones. We'll say a prayer, and then um, we'd love to maybe uh, ask some questions and hopefully um, get your thoughts on a couple of things. Great, fantastic. So. Uh... I'll just start off the prayers there. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary. Mary. Holy Mary. Mother of God. Pray for sinners. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary. Mother of God. Pray for sinners. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary Mother of God, God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of death. Amen. St. Oliver Plunkett and Blessed Frank Duff, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a great honour, Dr. Jones, to have you on. Um, every time I think of you, Dr. Jones, in Indiana, I suddenly think of the movie, so... Uh, apologies for that but uh, I'll hand you over to Creda who's going to conduct the interview today but I'll certainly have many questions for you. Creda over to you. Yeah thanks uh, Dr Jones I suppose maybe um, a place I, I was thinking we might uh, might be a good place to start because it, it picks up on your re- most recent book and I know you're you're currently working on um, a follow-up uh, book on it but logos rising uh, i mean you've talked about it on quite a lot of uh, podcasts and um, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic it's a very extensive uh, topic and uh, so just just on that dr jones i'm i'm curious um whether or not you feel that the topic of your book of that book uh, logos is is very relevant to uh, our present time in respect to everything that's going on. You've seen a lot of people that are trying to reconcile what's going on in the world with some sort of a spirituality. We're kind of seeing, you know, maybe um, you've seen some Catholics certainly get uh, reaffirmed back in their faith. You've seen some other people who don't don't know where to ground themselves and they're, they're kind of drifting off into other sort of spiritualities and they're evoking these kind of sovereignty type of movements and that kind of thing so just want to get your thoughts on, on what what where do you think uh, we are at the present time with um all of the the disarray that we see in in the catholic church and and despite all of that you see a lot of catholics that are starting to get it get organized and re-engage back in in with their faith yeah the the yeah you're right we've had a, a basically a catastrophic past uh, 50 years now in the Catholic Church, where things have gone from bad to worse, uh, largely because of uh, a campaign of social engineering that was waged against the church, 
uh, and the church was completely unaware of what was happening. The, the, the crucial uh, country in this regard was Germany. After Germany was conquered by the Allied powers in, in uh, World War II, uh, there was a Secretary of Treasury, uh, a Jew by the name of Morgenthau, who decided he was going to starve the Germans to death, punish them. The Jews were, were lusting for vengeance at this point. Uh, that plan didn't uh, was basically repudiated because the Americans found out about it, and it was completely repugnant. Herbert Hoover was referring to it as a Jewish or a, a Semitic vengeance, and the, people, the American people couldn't tolerate that. They still had a Christian consciousness, and so they changed the plan. They started sending food and money, and uh, but the the problem was that. Uh, the social engineering continued, or let's say it started, because if you're going to starve to death, you don't need social engineering. And so basically what they did to the German Catholic people was to convince them that they were bad people. Now, in some sense, we're all bad people. We all commit sin. But as Catholics, we have a way of dealing with that sin because Jesus Christ died for our sins and expiated our sins, and we have the sacrament of confession, and we can go and confess those sins. But uh, the, the Jews do not have this because uh, 70 years after Jesus Christ uh, rose from the dead, they rose up in rebellion against Rome, and their temple was destroyed. And uh, their temple, they had a temple to expiate sins. They had animal sacrifice every year to basically make up for their sins. Now they couldn't do that. And for 2,000 years, they had the problem of guilt, uh, had to deal with that problem of guilt. And they dealt with it by basically projecting it on to other people, projecting it away. So the Jew never did anything wrong. Uh, he was always the victim. It was always people picking on him. It was anti-Semitism. And what they were doing was basically disguising their own behavior, their own bad behavior. This is what, exactly what happened after World War II. They created the story of the Holocaust, and then the German people were guilty. The German people uh, at this point uh, were vulnerable. They lost the war, but they still had a residual Catholicism, and they had a leader. Uh, the leader was uh, Cardinal Frings of Cologne, who stood up to the Allies when they were starving the Germans to death, told the Germans they could go and take food. If it's in the warehouse, take it. It's not theft. If your family's starving, you have a right to take that food. If your family's freezing, you have a right to take the coal. Uh, and so the Allies backed down in the face of a courageous man like Cardinal Frings. He was involved in another battle as well, and that was the battle over obscenity. Because as soon as the Americans sent money in, they sent pornography in as well. And the the, everything that the Germans did in terms of publication, ideas, movies, films, TV shows, you had to get, they had to get a license. Magazines were the cutting edge of technology, and they had to go to a Jew, a Jewish psychiatrist from New York City to get the license, which meant they had to lie down and pretend uh, that they were guilty, and, and they got, got the license, and then they towed that line. That line meant sexual liberation. During this period of time, the mid 50s, the Kinsey Report shows up. All of the uh, glossy magazines, which were the cutting edge of uh, communication technology at that point, 
started publishing articles on the Kinsey Report and publishing pictures of naked women to go with the articles. So it, it was used to break the code. Now, the crucial figure in this regard was Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, he was a priest. Uh, he, became, he was in the seminary. He was 20 years old at the time of the hunger yard. Uh, the, the year they tried to starve the Germans to death. He knew whether he was hungry or not. He would talk to his family. His famous great uncle had written a book called Judicious Erwerbsleben, Jewish Business Practices. And uh, they knew that there was this traditional animosity against the Jews. They knew that Hitler had overplayed his hand. His father was not a supporter of Hitler. What are they going to do? 1959, Ratzinger shows up in Bonn. He meets Cardinal Frings. Frings likes him, he thinks he's a smart guy, takes him to Rome as his peritus in the Second Vatican Council. And at this point, you had this crucial moment, crucial moment. The man who initiated the Second Vatican Council was Alfredo Cardinal Ottaviani, prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And he wrote preliminary documents that basically specified what the problem was. Okay, over-centralization, Pius XII was running the church by himself pretty much. But what are the problems facing him? Communism, everybody knew that communism was a problem, but then he also says America's a problem. And he mentions specifically uh, psychoanalysis and Hollywood films were corrupting the morals of the Italian people. These are Jewish operations. Ratzinger comes in with Frings as his mouthpiece, wrote the speech, and basically the council threw out the documents, preliminary documents, embarrassed Ottaviani, who then was demonized in the CIA-controlled press. I'm referring to Time magazine. Uh, and they came up with a new program. Let's be positive. This is done 1964. Back in Germany, the, 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 you reached the high point of the, anti, the crusade to break down uh, obscenity laws in Germany when they Swedish film, uh, Das Schweigen, Silence in English, was released. It's Ingmar Bergman film. He was famous as the art cinema guy. Film comes out, and the church doesn't know what to do. The church is now embarrassed because Ratzinger, as an expression of the German Catholic Church, has said, we want to be positive now. We don't want this negative stuff. None of this, he mentioned specifically in his memoir, he mentioned the uh, pious the ninth syllabus of errors and pious the tenth anti-modernist oath. They don't want, that's negative. That's the past. We don't want to talk about the past. Past for Germans is taboo. We don't want to talk about it. We want to move forward. Let's be positive. The church has nothing to fear from the modern world. That's in Gaudium et Spes. And as a result, they lost the war while they're in Rome. They lost the war on obscenity in Germany. The church abandoned its own legion of decency. And as a result, the uh, sexual liberation swept through Germany, destroyed the morals, the sexual morals of the German people. And the proof of that to this day, that has affected us to this day, is the recent statement of the German Synod. Yeah. in Germany says, what do the German people want? Well, they want uh, divorced and remarried Catholics to go to communion, which means we're going to uh, basically uh, uh, ban the Sixth Commandment. And while we're banning the Sixth Commandment, let's uh, 
change all the rules on homosexuality uh, because they're outdated, they're not scientific. This is a catastrophe for the German people, but the problem is it's a catastrophe for the Catholic Church because the Germans had a leadership role in the church at the Second Vatican Council, and at that point they basically imposed the Holocaust narrative, which had been imposed on them, they impose it now on the Catholic Church, and the result is a catastrophe for the Catholic people all over the world. So, just to give you some indication, I was uh, I, I, there was uh, I, I've spoken in Nairobi a number of times at Catholic University of East Africa. The conference this year is on synodality. I sent them basically what I just told you—a paper based on that. They rejected it. Now, that's just about Germans. That's not, that's negative. This is the legacy. The legacy of what I just talked about has, has, is still with us. It's destroying the Catholic Church right now. I know you can't destroy the Catholic Church, okay, yeah. because God created it, but it's crippling the Catholic Church, largely because you have an elite group right now, the Jesuits. The Pope is a Jesuit. The Jesuits are now basically have been taken over by the spirit, this Jewish revolutionary spirit, and they are part of the homosexual mafia. And with a combination of those two things, they, have ba they are basically running the church according to the plan uh, of the world's oligarchs. Uh, George Soros, big contributor to Jesuit NGOs, uh, and the vaccine, uh, they're on board with the vaccine, they're on board with homosexuality, all of these movements that are subverting the church all trace back to the story that I've told. Now, that's, uh, that's, that's my statement of the situation. Okay, now the problem here is there's a, a, an identity problem because the Catholics have been robbed of their identity across the world. And so you, you have uh, uh, identity theft, identity theft. It happened in the United States uh, largely because of the race issue. So you had situation in big cities like Chicago where it's ethnic colonies. Okay, this is America. We have immigrants from Europe, and they come to America, and they basically set up neighborhoods. They take over neighborhoods, and these are an Irish neighborhood, a German neighborhood, an Italian neighborhood, Polish neighborhood, just to name the biggest ones. Every city is like this. And by the 60s, the church again abandons its people, as they did with the Legion of Decency. It's all happening around the same time. 1965 is the year that the production code got broken in Germany. 1965 is the year that uh, the church passes Nostratate, the council passes Nostratate, which says the Jews are now our elder brothers and our friends and so on and so forth, completely ignoring the reality of the culture wars that were going on at that time. And uh, the same thing is happening now. The civil rights movement shows up in big cities, and I'm talking about Chicago right now. 1966 is the year, one year later, Martin Luther King shows up in Chicago, he marches into Market Park and says, you white guys are excluding black people. You're discriminating against black people. Well, those white guys didn't know they were white. They thought they were Lithuanians because it was a Lithuanian neighborhood. And people in Lithuania aren't white because there are no black people there. And so as a result, they're demonized by their own church. 
and as a result, they're abandoned. And the, as a result of that, the neighborhoods collapse. They're driven out of their neighborhoods. They lose their ethnic identity. They're moved to the suburbs, and they start to think of themselves as white, which is a, a identity loss. And the result is, once again, a catastrophe for Catholic culture. But Dr. Jones, can I ask you a question there with regard yes. to um, St. Dorothy Day? I mean, she would have been uh, well acquainted with Saul Alinsky, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and she is held up to be very kind of um, almost a personification of modern Catholicism. But there was a quote there recently by Pope Ben, or when he was Pope Benedict, and he said, a Catholic priest cannot be reduced to a social worker. Uh, and he was saying that adopting that model of priestly ministry, the Pope said, runs the risk of, of betraying the very priesthood of Christ. And I would argue that a lot of priests now, they don't see themselves as promoting the salvation of men to go and women to go to heaven, but rather are fixated upon temporal issues. And I wonder, did the canonization of Dorothy Day really signal to a lot of people in the church the direction the church was going? Has she been canonized? Yes, yeah. I believe so, yeah. I, I, well, that's news to me. I know, I know there, are, there are elements in the church that uh, feel that way. She, she founded the Catholic Worker. Uh, uh, she was a, led a kind of bohemian lifestyle. She had an illegitimate child uh, early on and then converted to Catholicism and then became, uh, as I said, founded the Catholic Worker, which had that kind of uh, bohemian aura to it. Yeah. Uh, and it's still, you know, the founder has had that charism and it's, it's, it's that way to this day. So they're hard. To, I mean, I found, I've always found them hard to approach. When I was writing Barren Metal, which was my book on economics, uh, I tried to approach them and tried to uh, bring them together with uh, uh, Opus Dei here in local group. Uh, and they're, they're like oil and water. They don't mix. They just don't mix. You think that they both had the idea of labor. Labor is the source of all value. That's a fundamental principle that they could both share, but they can't. basically can't talk to each other. It's basically you've got a political template that's imposed on Catholic groups, and they tend to uh, be left-wing or right-wing, even though those, uh, those, uh, uh, those categories should not apply to uh, the apostles in the Catholic Church. Returning as well, as, oh, sorry, go on, credit, go on. So, sorry, Dr. Jones, I just wanted to ask you, um, the current situation, obviously, uh, with Tradiciones Custodes, I know you said that it's, I, uh, forgive me if I got this, if I took this up wrong, you said it's maybe not as big a deal as it's made out to be, I mean, there's been a lot of, uh, I suppose, traditionalist Catholics who are very upset because uh, obviously, the motu proprio uh, of Benedict—that's um, that's now thrown in the, in the in the trash can, and so they 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 feel they feel very uh, I suppose let down, and now you've got this uh, uh, I suppose unified Roman right under the Novus Ordo, and I think you said maybe that's not a bad thing because we can move past that now into bigger issues now that the the liturgy is I suppose. Um, the, the, the question is settled by the by the Pope to an extent 
and now we've only got one form of the Roman right, so we can get on to move past that and move on to uh, topics such as the the, the JQ and, and, and what's going on in, in, in those kind of uh, areas. So, I, I mean, I'm just kind of curious, when if we're, if we're to take that at, at, to be the case, then is there not a problem there as well that the Novus Ordo has kind of, it hasn't really done much for, for people's faith. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm just talking from my own experience, you know, I, I, I grew up, I, all I knew was Novus Ordo, and then I obviously, uh, you know, we're both reverts in the respect that we were lapsed Catholics, and, and to be honest with you, finding my way back to the church, it's only maybe through the appreciation and reverence for um, more, um, how do you say, traditional liturgies that are reconnected back with the faith. So do we have a problem there in, in, in that? Because there's, the Novus Ordo is not really... It's not really attracting Catholics back to the faith, you know, and, I, and I'm not sure those Catholic communities are holding up. I don't, I'm not sure that they're going to, just there's, it's too open to liturgical abuses. I'm, I'm sure you've seen what happened in Chicago there over, over Christmas, you know, it's, what, what are you, what are your thoughts on, on everything now? Can, can I ask on, on Traditionis Custodis and what way it's playing out? Yeah, I think Traditionis Custodis, goes back to Samorum Pontificorum. It's basically the revocation of Samorum Pontificorum, which was Ratzinger's uh, indult allowing widespread use of the Latin, Latin mass. Now, Samorum Pontificorum is his revision <coughs> of Ecclesia Dei, which was Pope John Paul II's um, attempt to uh, keep the Lefevreites from going into schism. Uh, so uh, this was intended uh, when when Lefebvre, uh or consecrated four bishops. That was a schismatic act, and the Pope tried to uh, deal with that by approaching uh, a remnant, a segment of that Pius X, and say, "We will give you the Latin Mass if you don't go into schism." And they they accepted it, and Ecclesia Dei then became the foundation of the fraternity of St. Peter, which was the group in Pius X that didn't go into schism. Okay, so it was started off as a kind of stopgap measure, and then Benedict comes along and kind of globalizes the whole thing, and I think changed the character of Ecclesia Dei, which was specifically for a certain group of people. Now, there was a group here, I, I knew them, because I was, I was part of this conservative uh, movement, the conservative reaction to the abuses that followed Vatican II. Uh, I started uh, Fidelity Magazine uh, as part of that crusade because we were going to ally ourselves with Pope John Paul II against the, the liberals who had taken over the church at places like Notre Dame University, which was a hotbed of, of heresy at that point, still is. Uh, largely over Humane Vitae. It was the big split came when the church announced when Pope Paul VI promulgated Humanae Vitae 1968, that's when the universities uh, came out and basically said, we're not going to follow this. Uh, so this was in reaction to that. Now, the problem here is that uh, uh, the, the Latin mass got weaponized. It got politicized. And it was basically, okay, so it's the symbol of resistance to liberal Catholicism. Well, no, no. No, now wait a minute. I think that's an abuse of the mass to do something like that. And I know the people that did it. Uh, uh, I was associated with them early on. 
it was uh, Roger McCaffrey, it was Howard Walsh, it was the New York Catholic crowd, and they were weaponizing the mass. And uh, I remember Howard Walsh took me aside right after I started the magazine. Nice man, he always treated me well. He basically said to me, nothing, uh, no, uh, there will be no reform in the Catholic Church until we go back to the Latin Mass. And I thought, at this point, this is one of the dumbest things I have ever heard in my life. So you mean to tell me I don't have to do any research about what really happened? We don't even know what happened to us. Now, this is before I wrote Slaughter of Cities. It's before I wrote... Uh, John Cardinal Crow and the Cultural Revolution. It's before I wrote Libido Dominandi. I hadn't written basic. I hadn't written anything in, in terms of books. I was putting out articles in Fidelity, trying to figure out what what happened, because no one was talking about the real story. All the stuff that I've been mentioning, the destruction of the neighborhoods in Chicago. Do you think that had an effect on the transmission of the faith? I do. The destruction of all those ethnic parishes had a catastrophic effect on the transmission of the faith. It had nothing to do with the Latin Mass, and nobody even knew about it. Was but, talking about it. Dr. Jones, can I just intercede here just a second? Um, yes. But if you, if you were to take that thesis, then wh why you know has the faith been destroyed in Ireland, which would have been quite homogenous uh, during the start of its destruction? Yes. Very simple. Sexual liberation. Right. Sexual liberation. Okay, the first attack, I gave this speech in, I think it was 2000 in Ireland. The priest abuse crisis was yeah. the thin end of the wedge. Okay, you attack the church. First of all, Ireland, as James Joyce said, was a priest-ridden culture. The, the, the people respected the priest maybe too much. Yeah. They gave him too much power. When the priests were discredited, the whole church, Catholic church, was called into question. Correct. So yeah. that was the beginning, and then you had... Basically, the, the big tech invasion in Ireland, Google is invited in as if they're not going to change your culture. Yeah. They took over the control of the information, and the, 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 the result was a catastrophe for Ireland. Yeah. They soften you up by lending you money. They call it the Celtic Tiger. Oh, wait a minute. I have to pay that money back, don't I? I just spent all that money. I borrowed money to go on a vacation yeah. in Mallorca. That was a bad idea. And then they follow it up with uh, the, sex, the, the control of information pointing you toward sexual liberation. That led to the abortion referendum. It was a catastrophe for Ireland. So if you want to know what, what I think happened to Ireland, it wasn't uh, the slaughter of cities. It was libido dominandi, sexual liberation and political control. That's what I think happened there. I suppose as well, like the, the media played a huge role in Ireland. In destroying the Ireland. You don't have to. You don't need tanks anymore. Yeah. You don't need uh, ships or aircraft carriers. Send in Google, and they will conquer your country simply by the control of information. This is the main battle we are fighting right now yeah. in the world, the entire world right now. Well, it's so big tech. Big tech is the, is a weapon uh, being used to to destroy the Catholic Church. And, and the Vatican is inviting these people in to, as their experts. Yeah. I suppose what I'm trying to get at, Dr. Jones, it's so bad in Ireland at the moment that you'd even get Irish nationalists who could be even as anti-Catholic as the worst loyalist gunman in the 1970s. And largely because a lot of younger people believe that the Catholic Church started in Ireland in the 1950s with the Magdalene laundries and abuse scandals. 
So all the further, the 1,600 years of Christianity, ostensibly Catholicism, has been reduced to the Magdalene laundries of the 1950s, according to the media. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the same, the same erasure of history took place in America uh, when in the 1950s in America, the church was dragooned into the anti-communist crusade, which, which meant they were working with the CIA, which meant they were working with their enemies. Yeah. The same thing happened in Germany. What's, what, so we'll get back, let's get back to Samorum Pontificorum. Here we have Ratzinger. What is, what is Ratzinger's problem? He's a German. Yeah. He has internalized the commands of his oppressors. He was the victim of social engineering, the most ruthless social engineering in the history of the world. Happened to the Germans. So let's go back to, he's 20 years old. You, the, the, the Jew Morgenthau is trying to starve the Germans to death. And what's he say? What is your position? Well, we don't know because he's not saying but we know that he basically accepted the Holocaust narrative, accepted German guilt, and then imposed it on the entire Catholic Church. Now, what the art, I did the article on uh, Samorum Pontificorum. I, I made a mistake of doing a video before I did the article. That's a mistake. It's always a mistake. Do the video after the article. So in the article, I point out that basically... Uh, the, the German theologians, uh, right after Ratzinger comes in, they, they get wind that he's thinking of uh, allowing widespread use of the Latin mass. They write to him and say, look, we know what you're doing. This is all about the Jewish question. Because what you're going to do is bring back all of those passages that have been suppressed, all the passages in Latin, about the perfidious Jews, like on Good Friday, things like that. That's what this is going on. That's what this is really about. And to be perfectly honest with you, much as I disagree with their ideology, I think they're right. I think this is exactly the type of behavior that you can expect from a German who has been socially engineered. In other words, there's a crisis with the liturgy. You're right. There, were, there are problems with the Novus Ordo Mass. It, does, it can lend itself to abuse. But that doesn't mean that uh, th there are opposite abuses associated with the Latin Mass. Okay, the, my point here is that the Latin the Mass has been used as a political football here. It should not be abused this way. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it has been. It was weaponized by the traditionalists, who were basically saying we don't have to care about anything. We don't we don't have to know anything about social engineering. We don't have to know anything about sexual liberation. We don't have to know anything about the destruction of the Catholic neighborhoods. All we need is the Latin Mass, and you just leave us alone. That's not that's not the attitude, and basically that's not a productive attitude. That is not going to get to the root of the problem. It's going to prevent people from getting to the root of the problem, and I think that was precisely the strategy of the New York Catholic crowd. But let's face it: what who controls New York? Who controls New York City? It's not the Catholics. Uh, it's the group that no one's allowed to talk about. And so the Latin Mass is now a way of just leave us alone. But we're not going to piss the Jews off. We're not going to talk about their involvement in pornography, uh, the, the, the crimes they commit in Israel. We're just going to talk about the Latin Mass. We're not even going to talk about that. We're just going to go to the Latin Mass and everything's going to be okay. 
Ratzinger capitulated, I think, to that point of view. But not completely, because I think he was, I think he was trying, in a way, his passive-aggressive way, of resurrecting the Jewish question, which he could not do as a German, explicitly. Couldn't do it. So let, let me just go to tell you what I think the, the, the real issue. Let's go back to the beginning of the Ratzinger pontificate. He shows up in uh, Munich, where he came from. Okay. And has uh, 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 gives a speech. Now this is similar to John Paul II. John Paul II becomes pope. The first thing he does, he goes back to Poland, and he give, hold, says mass in Warsaw, and a million people show up, and suddenly he challenges the regime, which is basically the communist regime that controls Poland. You're going to have a huge Catholic population and an officially atheistic country, and that's not going to work. And he basically says, I'm here to defend the Polish people. I think that Ratzinger should have done the same thing with the German people. Yeah. The precedent had been set. Yes, you're the pontiff of the entire Roman Catholic Church, but you're still a German, and in some sense, your first responsibility is to the German people, and you have to address what happened to the German people after World War II. The main issue would be guilt. Are the Germans guilty because of their DNA? Is anyone guilty because of their DNA? Well, this is what the Jews are saying about the Germans, and they're going to pay reparations forever. They are enslaved to this group of people that were put in power by the American uh, military uh, social engineers, and they needed to be liberated. So Ratzinger should have gone to uh, Munich, go back to Munich, and don't talk about the Muslims. That's not a big issue. I mean, it's an issue, but it's not a big issue. Talk about the Jews. Talk about guilt. Talk about the Holocaust. Now, at this point, uh, he probably would have broken the law in Germany which would have been great, because then the Germans are going to have to say, are we going to arrest the Pope? Yeah. As, as the French say, qu'il mange il pape, il meurt. The man who eats the Pope dies. Yeah. Okay, or so the Germans are going to arrest the Pope. That would be the best thing that ever happened to the papacy in the modern era, because then he'd be put on trial, and then what? You're going to send him to jail for preaching the gospel? He would have broken the whole of that, uh, that cabal that is ruining Germany, that were collaborating in the moral destruction of Germany, could address it, but he didn't do it. On that, on that, Dr. Jones, can I just ask a question there? I believe it was with, uh, with um, Patrick Coffin, or else it was Gemma Doherty, I can't recall which one, but you mentioned, uh, you, you spoke of a cabal there, and of course there's another big cabal operating within the church, the uh, homosexual cabal. And I think you said that the Jesuits are incapable of kind of reforming themselves as they've been taken over by the gay cabal. Can you right. maybe elaborate a small bit on that? Yeah, that's not my idea. That's the uh, Paul Mankowski, the late Paul Mankowski. Uh, a guy came from South Bend, a guy I knew. This man showed up at my house uh, right after he'd been ordained. He showed up with two other Jesuits. They had just been freshly ordained, and they talked to me about the situation in the Jesuit order and what they were planning to do and how they were hoping to reform it. They failed. And so the last time I talked to Paul Mankowski, I think it was in Ireland. I was in Ireland. We were at Maynooth at a conference. 
and he was speaking there, and uh, it was either there or when I met with him in Rome, and he said the Jesuit order is incapable of reforming itself right yeah. now. It has been taken over by this homosexual, I guess, a homosexual cabal. I think that's uh, the people are talking about now. Uh, Archbishop Vigano talks about the homosexual mafia. More importantly, uh, there's a Polish priest by the name of Darius Oko uh, who wrote about it in a German magazine called Theologisches and was then uh, basically indicted by the German government at the instigation of a homosexual. I don't, I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but the guy's on the Internet kissing another man on the lips. Yeah. So it looks like he's one of those we can guys. Say, say, uh... Uh, Father Rolte, I think from Bavaria, basically dragged. Father Oko into court. He was supposed to go on trial last Friday, and the, the, the case has been postponed uh, for another two months because the lawyer's sick. Wow. Now, Father Oko was fined 4,000 euros by the European Union and refused to pay the fine. That's why he's going on trial. Oko is saying that the homosexual mafia controls the church right now, yeah. and he's being uh, brought before a criminal trial because you're not allowed to say that anymore. Now, the law that they're trying him under is paragraph, the notorious paragraph 130, which was created in the 1990s as a way of uh, defeating, uh, 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 attacking Holocaust denial, what they were calling Holocaust denial. This is the law. It's the incitement law, Volksverhetzung, which basically says you cannot incite hatred. It doesn't mention homosexuality. It was meant to combat uh, people who disagreed with the Holocaust. It's a hate crimes law. It's a thought control law. And now it's going to be expanded to include homosexuality. That's the crisis we're in, in the church. It's probably the crisis that caused Ratzinger to resign. Uh, he shouldn't have resigned, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, he's still around. Uh, he shouldn't have resigned. He can still he still compass mentis. After why he resigned is something mysterious that you have to delve into his personality. But I think it's passive aggressive behavior, yeah. as I said before, because this is what Germans do now. They cannot deal with the problem uh, directly, and so they engage in it indirectly through this type of passive aggressive behavior. I'm saying Samorum Pontificorum and. The resignation are both examples of German passive aggressive behavior. But this, this, have you ever read Michael Rose's book Goodbye Good Men? Uh, and it dis yes. it discusses yes. kind of really about how Orthodox men were refused entry or were kind of uh, coerced not to continue with their uh, with their studies in seminarians. Yet homosexual minded, deep seated homosexual minded. Yeah seminarians tended to be kind of um, introduced into uh, yes, the priesthood. That is, true. that is true, but the problem is that he mentioned uh, Detroit, and he, he just suppressed evidence in that book because uh, Bishop, uh, Archbishop Vigneron had taken control of the seminary and had brought about reforms in the seminary, right. and that has happened. There are many seminaries that did come back. Uh, because they did kick out the homosexual mafia that was controlling him. Now that was a it, so he polemicized that in a way that he shouldn't shouldn't have done it. Yeah. That was 
the review that we ran in, in Culture Wars about that. He just suppressed information that he should have included, but there he was being weaponized, I think, by the conservatives yeah. at this point. it was I think Regnery published the book. It's a conservative operation that basically wanted to demonize the church at this moment in history, largely because Pope John Paul II was against the war in Iraq. That's why the conservatives were uh, uh, demonizing the pope at that point. Dr. Jones, you, you were mentioning earlier about the, the Synod, uh, the German Synod in particular. The situation, I mean, as it's looking at the moment, seems to be we're going to get uh, a lot of uh, people within the synodal process that, in all fairness, shouldn't really be there by virtue of a number of, of different facts. So you've got, the, it was even stated that um, people that weren't even necessarily baptized were, were going to have their say. We've already seen suggestions come out of the German Synod that I think one of the motions was that um, they even put the priest up, the priesthood up for, for its own abolition. Uh, so there's all these kind of insane ideas getting promulgated in this synodal process, and out of it, um, I, do you think it's already a predefined, predetermined outcome, and they're just looking to manufacture the consent by having these people air, air their opinions? Where where do you think this is going to go ultimately? Yes. Yes, it's the, the, is, is, is it going to be a bad thing? As we say in America, the fix is in. Yeah. The fix is in. Okay, and I told uh, that they we had a session at our local parish. I said to the priest, you're wasting your time and my time. They already, there's some Jesuit in the Vatican who already knows what the synod is going to say. And what you say here in South Bend isn't going to make one bit of difference. The fix is in. I'm trying to explain to you why, where the fix came from. That's what I'm trying to do, because if we don't understand, why is Germany the lead in this? Well, because the, the Americans and the, and the Jewish psychiatrists like David Mordecai Levy basically brainwashed the entire German people. How did they do that? By introducing sexual liberation. Yeah. That is the basic uh, form of social engineering that destroyed Germany. I was there. I was a teacher in Germany during the 1970s when that wave of softcore porn films swept through the cinema, local cinema. Okay, now in the 1950s, when they tried to do the Bergmann film, the Catholics under the direction of Frings and uh, the Volkswagenbund, the Legion of Decency, they, they had riots in the theaters. That's when the Germans still had some type of moral fiber. That was destroyed by the direction the Vatican Council took after World War II. It was, by the, it was destroyed by the German acceptance of social engineering and the German acceptance of the American empire as some type of force for good in the world. That was a catastrophe for the Catholic Church that is how the Jesuits got to where they are today. It was through Americanism, which was declared a heresy in 1893. I'll give you an example. Okay, the Synod on the Family, 18, uh, 1986, I believe it was, they had a preliminary meeting at St. Mary's College, which I, the place I got fired from for opposing abortion. And uh, Father Brian Hare stands up there and he says, the church has to learn from America. Oh, okay. What's that mean? 
in the 1890s, it was uh, uh, democracy. Well, what is it now? Well, it's sexual liberation. Well, he didn't say that. It's feminism. America is way ahead of the church in dealing properly with women because uh, feminism is the way to go. This is a complete adoption of American imperialism by the Catholic Church. He was the right-hand man of Cardinal Bernadine. Cardinal Bernie was a very dubious figure. He was the leader of the Catholic Church during this period when the homosexual mafia really took over the church, probably because he was of that persuasion. But that's the crucial problem here. You adopted the, the ideology of the American Empire, and the American Empire in Germany imposed sexual liberation, it corrupted the morals of the German people, and when you, when you commit sins against the Sixth Commandment, you feel guilty. Of course you do. But now the ideology of the Holocaust comes in and says, oh, it's not because you just committed adultery that you feel guilty, it's because you're a German, you have bad DNA, and you're an anti-Semite by your nature. That's the transformation that took place. That's what needs to be exposed here as the real root of the problem with the Synod. That's the problem with the Synod. It's German. But Dr. Jones, how much would you say is cognitive dissonance playing in, or what measure of role is it playing with a lot of the clergy who I would argue have uh, homosexual tendencies? And of course, cognitive dissonance is about reconciling two divergent, well, one a divergent behavior and a uh, a um, what you might call a, uh, a a form of suffering with regard to reconciling the behavior and the knowledge that it's bad. And I often wonder: is it is there is, are there many clergy trying to kind of reconcile that discordancy between their behavior and the knowledge that it's bad? and trying to legitimize homosexuality and trying to change theology as a result. That's right. You're absolutely right. That's what's going on here. So you have men who have been uh, dedicated their lives to God, but they've got a bad habit. Okay, uh, sex is a powerful force. Okay, the problem uh, in the 60s, <coughs> generally, uh, there was heterosexual. The sexual revolution swept through the church. Uh, the priests now felt they could act on their sexual impulses in a way that was before, but most people are heterosexual. Yeah. So the overwhelming majority are attracted to members of the opposite sex. That happens. Notre Dame has these summer schools. The nuns are falling in love with the priests, and they run off and get married. They leave. That means you've concentrated the percentage of homosexuals in the church because they have no incentive to leave. So now you've got guys who are acting out their homosexual impulses and they know it's wrong because you cannot not know that that's wrong. And so how do they resolve it? It's the zenosal vague. Synodality is now going to make wrong right. Yeah. That's the whole point of the synod. And if you think it's something else, you're crazy. Yeah. There's some homosexual mafia Jesuit who has already made up his mind what the church wants, and it's exactly what the Jesuit order wants. They lead very comfortable lives. They have a, a very, uh, they have a, basically a luxurious lifestyle, 
and all, but they're troubled by their consciences because they know that what they're doing is wrong. So this is a way of getting, uh, calming your conscience down. It's exactly analogous to women who have abortions. You can either repent or you can mobilize and create a, an army of women who all have the same guilty conscience and you feel better in marching in Washington with all these other people who feel guilty. That's what the Senate is. Yeah. Have you ever read Dr. Uh, Dr. Jones, a book by Robert Marricks? It's called The Jesuit Order as a Synagogue of Jews, Jesuits no. of Jewish Ancestry and Purity of Blood Laws in the Early Society of Jesus. Marricks is himself a Jewish academic, but he was saying that at the start of the, um, the order, there are a lot of conversos in the Jesuit order. Yet that was kind of changed in around, I think, was it under the Archbishop of Toledo in 1547. But then he believes that it, it this kind of, um, I suppose, uh, curbing of Jewish infiltration into the Jesuits was curbed until 1946. So it was abrogated when the some Italian fascists reminded the Jesuits that their purity laws were even harsher than the German ones. Uh, so the, the Jesuits have been infiltrated badly since post-war um, Europe. First of all, I disagree completely with that thesis. Right. I mean, I cover, I cover the Converso crisis in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. There was a Converso crisis. But, and and it, the problem was it led Spain down the road of racism because they started talking about limpiates of the sangre, the purity of blood. Okay, your DNA doesn't guarantee anything. Okay. Your DNA does not dispose you to good or to evil. It, 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 it creates the shape of your nose and the color of your hair, and that's that. Yes. It doesn't affect your behavior at all. Yeah. And anyone who says it does is a racist, yeah. including the Jews, the Zionists, who feel that they have special DNA. Okay, all the way back to Jesus' time when the Jews said that Jesus Christ were the seed of Abraham. Okay, so when you're talking about the 16th century, there were genuine conversions. There were false conversions, there were genuine conversions. Right. And there is no evidence of any of this corruption in the Jesuit order at this point. This was a heroic group of people. Yeah. Would you say it's, that, that thesis so is attributable to the black legend to try and solid the church? I think it is. This yeah. is classic black legend because the Jesuits were the most powerful force for good in the Catholic Church. No one had ever seen a, a dynamic group like this before. Yeah. We're talking about a guy who will uh, walk into the jungle of Paraguay yeah. and, and learn Guarani. Yeah. Do you realize how hard it is? Yeah. I had to struggle to learn German. I and understand that in France, in France, want to write, write the dictionary, and the, this is heroic figures. Yeah. The same thing in in uh, Quebec. Yeah. Learning uh, uh, Mi'kmaq and all these these languages. Going to China, going to Japan, and, and be, being a force for evangelization like the world had never seen. No, that's that's that was the good Jesuits, and they were great. They yeah. were so heroic that the enemies of the church had to suppress them. Yeah. And that's I, precisely what happened with the suppression of the Jesuits uh, under, uh, uh, forget the Pope's name, but anyway. The Clement, is it? 
Clement, right. Uh, what's his name? Benedict XIV was a heroic figure, and he resisted the Duc de Choiseul. Yeah. Duc de Choiseul shows up in Rome, says you have to suppress the Jesuits. He thinks he's a Catholic. Well, he was baptized a Catholic, but he's a Freemason. Yeah. And so Benedict XIV says to him, you want to be Pope? There's the chair. You sit in the chair. And, of course, the Duc de Choiseul backed down, and then Benedict dies, and then his successor is a weak man, and he uh, suppresses the Jesuits, which was a tragedy for France because it led directly to the French Revolution. You're dealing with sinister figures like Voltaire. His Candide is a diatribe against what the, Je the heroic efforts that the Jesuits had made in Paraguay, and it succeeded in intimidating the church. Yeah, I mean, I, I read an account there that apparently Jesuit priests, when they were uh, traveling from France back into um, Britain to re-evangelize during the Counter-Reformation, were considered martyrs before they even entered the boats in order to go back into Britain. People like St. Edmund Campion, right. who would have gone to right. France and returned back to England, and of course was hung, drawn and quartered. These were very brave, very brave men. And um, But what would you say happened to the Jesuits post-war? So where did they go wrong? They became Americans. It was Americanism that corrupted the Jesuits. Yeah. Because America was fighting communism. So therefore, everything America did was great. This, this, this was a catastrophe for the Catholic Church. The epitome of Americanism, first of all, it began before that, okay? It began in the 19th century, which is why Leo, Leo XIII condemned it in the 19th century. But basically, you got all of these people from poor, illiterate farmers like my grandfather coming from Ireland and coming over here. His sisters are over here. His sisters, my great aunts, are working for the rich wasp elite on the main line and in Chestnut Hill in, in Philadelphia. And they're, they're treated as inferiors. They're servants. And you want to succeed in this country because you got all this opportunity. My, my grandfather did succeed. He was a very successful businessman, lost his money in the Depression, but he was successful. Well, don't you want to be successful? Don't you want to be like John B. Kelly, the bricklayer, the famous bricklayer rower from Philadelphia who yeah. became uh, a powerhouse in the Democratic Party? Don't you want to be like John F. Kennedy? Yeah. Don't you want to be rich and famous? Powerful? Of course you do. And that's the problem. So you go along with the American agenda and suddenly you lose your faith. Because the American agenda after World War II was sexual liberation. And this was music to the ears of those Jesuits with all those homosexual inclinations. Dr. Jones, to bring things up to date, uh, there's obviously a lot of different um, boiling points in the world at the moment. We've got the situation in Canada, and then also uh, it seems to be uh, brewing over in uh, Russia and uh, Ukrainian border there. Uh, what What are your thoughts? Um, I suppose uh, I know you're not a fan, but he, he did mention this. Uh, I, I think in one of his recordings, uh, Malachi Martin kind of he connected what um, he, he connected the third secret of Fatima with um, potentially what events that may occur in Russia and Ukraine. I'm just wondering, do you have any do you have any thoughts on on that situation? Ukraine, the Ukrainian parliament just passed a law banning, criminalizing anti-Semitism. Does that tell you who's in charge in the Ukraine? Yeah. Okay. Do, do you know about Victoria Nuland? 
2014. She or she's a Jew. She orchestrates a coup d'état, overthrows the legitimate government, and installs a Jewish regime in the Ukraine, which then gets weaponized as an attack on Russia. That's what's going on in the Ukraine. Okay. And you, do, you, do you foresee that it's going to escalate from here, or do you think it's just brinkmanship? I don't, I'll have to look at my crystal ball. I don't know. I mean, the <laughs> Russians have drawn a line in the sand, and they are absolutely right to do this. The Ukraine, it's like, oh, wait a minute, is there a Russian army in Texas? Yeah. No. No, there's an American army in Russia. And Ukraine was always part of Russia. Okay? That's there. I said to my Iranian friends, why did you put your country in the middle of all those American military bases? The point here is uh, the, the ferocious expansion of NATO into a situation where it's going to look as if it could precipitate World War III. That was really stupid, and the driving force behind this was the Jewish neoconservative movement, which got us into this mess in Iraq. And now we are, the Catholics are completely missing in action because no one is allowed to criticize a Jew. That's the, that's the de facto position of the Catholic Church right now. You're not allowed to criticize a Jew. Now, wait a minute. I have a question, Your Eminence. Is it a sin to criticize a Jew? Because I'll admit I do that. I'm not an anti-Semite. I don't believe they have bad DNA. I don't hate Jews. I have brought about the conversion of many Jews through my writings. Okay, but I have a question for the Catholic Church. Is it a sin to criticize Jews? Yes or no? Well, the answer has to be no, because Jesus Christ criticized Jews, and he's incapable of sin. So if, if, if it's not a sin, then why are you bothering me? Why are you troubling my conscience as a Catholic with your man-made regulations of the type that the Pharisees imposed on the Jews and Jesus criticized? Why are you doing this? We have to break this hold over the Catholic Church. It is crippling and destroying the Catholic Church because we are alienated from our own gospel. But on that note, though, Dr. Jones, in 2016, I read that Putin invited Jews to Russia, saying that European Jews concerned by anti-Semitism are officially welcome in Russia. But then in 2018, Putin slammed uh, Jews for potentially meddling in the U.S. election. So they're like, can you explain or kind of uh, explain that kind of dissonance for me? Or yes. Basically, the Russian Russia was conquered uh, by deception uh, at the t by 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 basically America by George Bush, yeah. who then promised uh, uh, Gorbachev that they wouldn't move NATO one inch east. Well, he lied. He knew they were going to do that. Yeah. Okay. So at this point, Russia is on the ropes. They their population actually decreased at the time when Boris Yeltsin was the prince. Boris Yeltsin was a puppet, an American puppet, and his job was to stay drunk as the Jews looted his country. The, we're talking about the, the oligarchs, the people the Russians called the oligarchs, seven of the eight oligarchs were Jews. And they were collaborating with Jeffrey Sachs, the Jew from Wall Street, uh, who was basically at the 
at the side of Boris Yeltsin. Then he, they ordered Yeltsin ordered the attack on the the Parliament Building, the White House. Uh, so it was a Jewish operation, a Jewish looting operation of the basically the, the patrimony of the the wealth of the Soviet Union. It was now going to be passed into the hands of eight, uh, seven Jewish oligarchs. So at, at this point, uh, the Russians wake up to what happened, and Putin rises to the top, and he basically brings them under control. Does it mean that he uh, expels all the Jews? No. Basically, it's my way or the highway, and so Berezovsky has to leave. He has to go to London, but the other the, the other Jewish oligarchs, he doesn't. He's not. He's, he's not a religious crusader. He's a politician who has to balance political power, political blocks. So he's got hardline generals. He's got Jewish oligarchs. He's got all these different power blocks, and he's got to balance them. And I, I, I'd have to say he's probably good at, at this balancing act. Yeah. So, yeah, of course he's going to say, yeah, well, I've got nothing against Jews. You should come in. But he knows that if you let them in and they take over, you're in trouble. And that's precisely what happened in the Ukraine. It's what, let's, let's face it, it's what happened in the United States of America. Our foreign policy is controlled by the Israel lobby. Yeah. It doesn't represent the interest of the American people. We are not benefiting from any of this. There's one country in the world that benefits from our foreign policy, and it's Israel. And we're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. And what do you think is his, Putin's relationship with Alexander Dugan? Because I'm a bit confused as well about Dugan because he doesn't put the Catholic Church in a in a positive light at all. No, no, he's a. First, I met uh, Dugan in Mashhad in Iran, uh, and he gave a speech about we are now going to a multipolar world, uh, and of course everybody thought that was a good idea because they don't like uh, American imperialism. I said, I said, wait a minute. I think we're heading in the opposite direction because we're all sitting here in Iran speaking in English, you know, which means that we have a, a, a moment of opportunity where we can talk to each other. Uh, even though the American empire is a bad thing, it's good that we all speak English now because we can talk to each other. Yeah. You know, so I, I kind of, he, he, he asked me to write an article. So I wrote an article. It's been translated into Russian. It was published in this magazine. But we, we have a, a fundamentally different view uh, of the world. He's a Russian. They're, the Russians have their own history. Yeah. They have a kind of, they are, it's been conditioned by the Russian Orthodox Church, which is not in communion with Rome. And so as a result, there is a kind of ethnocentrism mm. to the Russian Church that is not healthy. Okay, when I was in St. Petersburg, the Church of the Spilt Blood, where the Tsar was assassinated, is covered with plaques about this is the glorious days when we conquered Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. This is a national church, okay, with all the, the, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of a, of a, of a national church, uh, a kind of xenophobia, which is probably, if I were a Russian, I would probably be xenophobic as well, but I'm not. I'm not, and I'm saying that this is. I don't think this is the way the way forward. I'm trying to propose my own way forward, and my experiences in Iran, talking to this group of people uh, that have one of the oldest civilizations in the world. Okay, two thousand five hundred years has given me new respect for this group of people, and this is why I wrote Logos Rising. 
because we have the English language. Yeah, we can talk to each other because we have the common language, but we have to have some type of deeper philosophical basis, and that's Logos. And I'm saying that you have to get in line with the movement of Logos in human history, and the main thing holding that back in, in Iran other, at the moment, we have American and Israeli imperialism, but it's the problem of Islam. And you mentioned earlier on Jeffrey Sachs, and of course, he's uh, playing a prominent role in the Vatican at the moment. And of course, Sachs is ostensibly Jewish, but also pro-abortion, most likely pro-global homo. Um, why is someone like that operating in the Vatican? Because of the Jesuits. Yeah. The Jesuits... Uh, by the Jesuits, I'm talking about America Magazine and New York, which is kind of the, the center of American Jesuit life and also the Jesuit order. Yeah. Okay, these are the people who are running the church. That's why Jeffrey Sachs replaced, um, um, what's his name now? I know the guy's name. I, I know the guy. Uh, he's on the Cat Pontifical Academy of Sciences. He was moved. He's a serious Catholic. He was removed to make way for Jeffrey Sachs, who is uh, a globalist. Yeah. He represents the oligarchs. Why has the church become the chaplaincy of the oligarchs? How has this happened? There's one simple answer. It's the Jesuits. They yeah. did it. They yeah. run the church. It's a catastrophe for the church. Yeah. They're going to have to be suppressed. They are, a, they are a fifth column within the Catholic Church that represents every oligarchic attempt to destroy the Catholic Church. And why do they do this? Because they're controlled by a homosexual mafia and they want to gratify their passions and be uh, 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 respected members of the church at the same time. You can't do that. Thanks, Dr. Jones. I was uh, going to ask you, you mentioned there um, the, the um, reason why you... you um, were motivated to write Logos Rising, and I know um, from previous interviews you said you're working on a follow-up, or I suppose um, you're working on the next um, thesis that you, I think it was around the aesthetics. Uh, can, right. you, can you maybe explain a bit about that? Yes, yes. So why why is this? So I'm, I just the book is at the printer. The title of the book is <clears throat> the dangers of beauty. <clears throat> The conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. And it's basically a history of Western art. It begins with art, painting in Italy, goes then to music in Germany, and then talks about poetry in England. And then the final section is Jewish modernity and how mimesis was destroyed by Jewish art dealers and, and so on in, in the 20th century. So why, why is this the sequel? Well, because <clears throat> there are three transcendentals. In other words, three characteristics of being. Being is God. Uh, essential being uh, is God. So we're talking about God here and the attributes of God. And the three transcendentals are the good, the true, and the, and the beautiful. So uh, basically, um, you know, I got started off talking about the good, which is morality. Uh, largely about sexual morality because that's the big challenge that I saw and so a book like Libido Dominandi is about the good and how you achieve the good and then there's the true well Logos Rising is about uh, being uh, understood philosophically and that's the true and so there's one place to go and that's uh, the beautiful 
and I had neglected the beautiful because I, I, I just grew up in an era when nobody took aesthetics seriously. That probably because of the Jewish hegemony over art in the 20th century, where nobody knew what beauty was anymore, because it certainly wasn't being displayed in art galleries. You know, after World War II, after uh, so you have uh, uh, the the decline of mimesis after the great triumph of the Italians, uh, centuries beginning with Giotto. You have the decline in France, the movement away from mimesis, which is imitation of nature. That's Aristotle's term. Uh, with uh, Impressionism, which there's still, you can make a case, there's some representation there, but the big decline begins when the Jewish art dealer, Kahnweiler, shows up and uh, goes to Picasso and says, I got, let's create a new movement, we'll call it Cubism, and at this point you have the marketing uh, taking over uh, the aesthetic element, and then that continues uh, another Jewish art dealer shows up. Leo Castelli shows up in New York. He creates uh, uh, the, the, the – he didn't create abstract expressionism, but he certainly jumped in and, uh, and promoted abstract expressionism. He created pop art with Andy Warhol, which is also uh, uh, basically an attack on mimesis from the opposite direction. But speaking that's for – That's did that. Speaking of attacks there, uh, Dr. Jones, I've become very aware – watching movies these days uh, about the amount of blasphemy within movies and especially taking the Lord's name in vain and uh, it's so insidious now and I, I can't believe that I wasn't aware of it because again the culture tends to kind of make us desensitized to kind of these right. kind of things you know but like do you think there's an orchestrated movement to kind of demonize Christianity by those who run the uh, studios in Hollywood? Yeah. Can, can we talk about Jews? <laughs> because they're the people that control Hollywood. Yeah. Blasphemy is a virtue if you're a Jew, if you're yeah. blaspheming Jesus Christ. It's in the Talmud. Yeah. The Talmud is full of blasphemy. So that they, they come by it naturally. I One of the people I deal with uh, in the fourth part is Leonard Bernstein. Uh, he was a talented guy. He was a great uh, teacher. He's got a great uh, uh, five-minute uh, history of music that he gave at Harvard. Uh, okay, but uh, but he, he's a Jew. And not only is he a Jew, he's homosexual. He's got these homosexual tendencies that he's, tr he's struggling, struggling. So he gets married, marries a Catholic. She converts to Judaism. But he's going to be the family man. And at this point, he, you know, he starts to reform. His music gets better. This is the period where he did West Side Story, which is probably his most accessible piece of music. But then he's become promoted above his pay grade, in a sense. He, he was never a great composer. He felt that he had to close. He was always a, a conductor. He was known as a conductor because, because he was homosexual, because he was a nar narcissism as part of homosexuality. And you're the center of the universe when you're a conductor, especially a conductor like, like Lenny. So the crisis comes when basically the Kennedy family uh, commissioned him to do a mass, a Catholic mass, music for a Catholic mass. Now, first of all, that's uh, above your pay grade. That's not You don't believe in that. But secondly, more importantly, I think, you're dealing with some pretty significant competition here. 
you're not the first guy that ever composed music for a mass. So you're going up toe to toe with Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the greatest pieces of music ever done. Uh, Vivaldi's Gloria is still being played in Israel. It's such a great piece of music. Uh, Beethoven's Mass, and so on and so forth. And Lenny, I think at this point, looks at the competition and he says, I, I, I can't. It's like, wait a minute, I'm going to box uh, a combination of Mike Tyson and Muhammad Ali right yeah. now, and I'm a 90-pound weakling. So what's he do? He goes for blasphemy. Yeah. He ten and he writes the mass, and it's blasphemous. It's there's no question about it. the stupid Kennedy family uh, woke up in the middle of the mass, and people saying, "Wait a minute, what's this part of taking the Eucharist and throwing it on the ground here? What's that got to do with uh, the mass?" Yeah. Well, because Lenny uh, knew he couldn't come up with something beautiful, uh, something as heroic as Bach, what Bach or Beethoven or any of those people had done. And so he decided, I'll make fun of it. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly the Jewish take on art, okay? They're not good at it, certainly have no qualification whatsoever for visual art. So instead of just uh, reconciling themselves to that and letting other people who are better at it take the field, no, they're going to take over and they're going to turn it into blasphemy and pornography, which is what they're famous for in the 20th century. And what, what role did the Jews play in the degeneracy during the Weimar Republic? Well, they ran it. They ran, basically, Germany's on the ropes, and so you have a guy like uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, a Jew uh, who created the Institute for Sexualforschung in Berlin, uh, which was basically a homosexual bordello using science as the big front to legitimize what they were doing. Yeah. Christopher Isherwood showed up there. He was the one who understood that this was just a, a big homosexual whorehouse. That's all it was. Well, uh, so we, we have the Nazi uh, Nazis burning books, and that's a horrible thing. But it turns out that the books they were burning happened to be books like Magnus Hirschfeld's book, Magnus Hirschfeld was using, promoting homosexuality during the liberal era of the Weimar Republic yeah. to basically cripple the morals of the German people. Yeah. And Hitler knew it, and he, he made political hay out of, the, 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 of uh, Magnus Hirschfeld. You know, I've said before, if, if Magnus Hirschfeld didn't exist, Hitler would have to invent him. Yeah. He was a classic example of the Jewish subversion of morals that basically did kick in after World War II when no one could talk about it anymore. I mean, would you say that uh, the West is going through a kind of Weimar Republic Mark II because of the degeneracy that's everywhere? I mean, we are seeing now almost the legitimization of paedophilia. And, of course, it's always brought... It's, it's very subtle. They're caught first uh, considered or labelled minor attracted persons. And we see scientists or social scientists trying to legitimize them as you know a, a form of sexual orientation and of course once it becomes a sexual orientation then you've got the whole equality of expression uh, narrative so like where where are we as compared to the weimar republic i mean are we in this weimar republic mark ii at the moment or oh yeah it's gone much farther than that because there's no opposition yeah where is the opposition why is there no opposition uh, first of all, the main source of support for the moral law is the Catholic Church. Yeah. 
if you eliminate the Catholic Church, there's no force that's going to be able to preserve moral, the moral order. That simple, okay? Uh, so, uh, why is the Catholic Church missing in action here? Well, because they can't criticize Jews. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. So, I, I, so I will say the Jews are behind gay marriage. Everybody says, you're an anti-Semite. Only an anti-Semite would say that. Well, wait a minute. Amy Dean said that. She's a Jewish lady who thinks, who fought for gay marriage. She wrote that statement in Tikkun Magazine, which is a Jewish magazine. And all I'm doing is repeating what she said. So yeah. why am I an anti-Semite? Yeah. Because the church is missing in action. Yeah. The church cannot, Sun Tzu, whatever, Sun Tzu, the Chinese guy. You have to know the enemy. You have to be able to identify the enemy. Yeah. So what do we have? What do we have? A situation. I'll be very specific. Archbishop Chaput of Philadelphia, where I grew up, writes an article in First Things in which he talks about the uh, how did we get in this mess. Well, it started with the banning school prayer. Uh, right. There's a Supreme Court decision, Abington versus School Board, 1964-2, I believe. Okay? So who's responsible for that? You know what Chaput says? Secularizing activists. Yeah. Well, wait, who are they? Can you look them up in the phone book? If you have <laughs> phone books anymore, yeah. is it under S or is it under A? Well, yeah. that's, that's a category of the mind that he created in order to uh, stay on the reservation, the plans, in order to preserve Nostritate. Yeah. Because I know who did it. It was the American Jewish Committee mm. that filed the lawsuit. And the lawyer in that case was Leo Pfeffer. And Leo Pfeffer was a notorious uh, hater of the Catholic Church. He hated everything about the Catholic Church. How do we know that? Because he wrote a memoir. And where does that memoir appear? In Commonwealth, the Commonweal, the Catholic magazine. Yeah. Now, what do you expect to achieve, Your Excellency? Mm -hmm. By writing this phony-ass article in First Things, which was created by Jews to begin with, to basically created by Mitch Decker and Norman Podaritz, uh, who used jo Richard John Newhouse as their front man, to basically control the discourse among the conservatives. Yeah. We are not going to get anywhere if you start, all you're going to do is talk about secularizing activists. But sadly, Dr. Jones, it's not just a secularizing, because we saw there during the week, if you, um, was it Cardinal Hollerish from um, Luxembourg, uh, stating because of soci sociology and science, we now had to revisit uh, the homosexual question. And of course, this is a, is patently absurd because sociology is a descriptive discipline, not a prescriptive one. Right. And of course, science right. doesn't say anything. It's just a method of collecting data effectively. But like, yet this man is was put in charge then of the, uh, the synod. Uh, like, I just find it so bizarre that there are high-ranking clergymen now who are borderline heretics, yet they're being promoted under Francis. And of course, Francis loves James Martin, SJ, who's constantly uh, using ambiguous language or plausible deniability, but in essence pushing an LGBT agenda. Right. That's I, why I, I, so I'm trying to put this, the big picture together here. Okay. It began in Germany with G 
Jewish social engineering imposed on the German people, which led to the corruption of their morals, which led to guilt, which led to promoting the Holocaust as the antidote to guilt, which led to the takeover of the discourse in the Catholic Church, which led to the Synod promoting homosexuality. And this guy yes. from Luxembourg is just part of that process. Yes. That's yes. the big picture that has to be addressed here. Yes. That's fantastic, Dr. Jones. Just before I let you go there, because you've been fantastic, um, if Pope Francis were to die today, and obviously we don't wish that upon him, but if he were, where would you say he rates a lot amongst the pantheon of popes? Uh, right below Alexander VI. Right. That says an awful lot. Listen, Dr. Jones, thanks so much for coming on. We might just complete there with a quick prayer. Uh, so in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us Amen. Listen, thanks very much, Dr. Jones, for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Thanks very much.